You are listening to Hospitality Talks, a podcast about all things hospitality through discussions with industry leaders around the globe. Here are your hosts, Abid Butt and Sam Eric Rutman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hospitality Talks. Um, today, we are going to be focused on Middle East. Middle East is rich in hydrocarbon assets. However, there has been a focus on travel and tourism sector with a widely shared strategic goal of diversifying away from hydrocarbon sector. With an excellent geographic location, cultural sites, world-class infrastructure and facility, the region has been one of the world's most competitive uh, tourism destination uh, for a global consumer base. Continued expansion of private sector through reforms, investments in local economy, attracting higher international tourist arrivals and hosting of international events will further drive growth in the hospitality sector. With this growth, the industry continues to evolve, attracting different segments rather than just being focused on luxury markets. Along with that, the pandemic is changing the region's hospitality industry exponentially, uh, where the follow-on effects will be felt for long time to come. Our panelists today will help us understand the recovery status, industry sentiment, and new trends in the region. I'm Abed Bhatt. I'm here with my co-host, Sam Eric Rutman. Sam. Yes, I'm really excited about uh, this discussion today with the panelists. Uh, uh, I have a soft spot for the Middle East, uh, having lived there for a few years, and, uh, and I keep a close eye on developments. And the region is one of the most innovative and uh, forward-thinking uh, regions, uh, and uh, I'm excited to hear what has now happened and how we are moving forward uh, the post-pandemic. So shall we bring the panelists to the screen? Yes, please. Uh, so, Sam, uh, we have a wonderful uh, group of professionals with us today. First and foremost, Mark Dunford, who is partner and head of investments with Cavendish Maxwell. Uh, he's a business leader, been involved in the industry uh, uh, from strategic advisory point of view in commercial real estate sectors. In his current role, he oversees the investment and commercial agency activity with a focus on Middle East. Uh, he uh, has, has dealt with Africa for the longest time with Middle East, so a, a person with a very deep knowledge and understanding. We also have joined us today uh, Amit Nayak, who is vice president and board member of Hospitality Asset Managers Association for Middle East and Africa. Uh, he has been involved in asset management and hospitality for a long period of time with some large owning entities in the region and has a fabulous understanding on operations and asset management in Middle East uh, uh, related to hospitality industry. And last but certainly not least, Michael Sager, who's the Chief Operating Officer of Hospitality Management Holdings. Uh, again, a, a long-term industry professional with global involvement in the industry. In his current 
capacity as CEO of uh, HMH. Michael is responsible to further grow the largest dry sector operator with its five brands spanning from luxury to budget. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Hospitality Talks. Thanks. So if, uh, uh, Mark, if it's okay, we'll have you lead us uh, out for the discussion. Let's, let's talk from broader perspective in the region. Talk a little sure. bit about the recovery trends. Talk about what markets uh, uh, are performing like. And, and what do you see uh, the status of the industry today? Um, thanks for having me, firstly. And um, Sam, for a minute there, I thought you were going to say you had a soft spot for your panelists when you said you were excited about this session. But in the end, it was the Middle East. So I'm a little bit disappointed about that. Um, but we'll move on from that. I think, you know, it, the, the Middle East is quite a diverse place. And, and obviously, I've been dealing with um, Africa and the Middle East for a while now. Um, and so when people sort of say the Middle East, it breaks down, obviously, further into, into different markets. If we kind of focus on the UAE, I think what we've seen in the UAE is what we're going to see to an extent in continental Europe and the U.S. come summertime and, and come high vaccination rates where domestic tourism is really going to push um, leisure rate and occupancy. Um, so, I, you know, I'm a big believer that the, the destinations you can drive or train to in, in Europe and, and the U.S. And, and in fact, we saw it with some of the Chinese holidays earlier this year um, in China, the domestic tourism really drove that that, that leisure segment. And, and the same has been true here in the UAE. So, you know, a lot of uh, resorts in Rak and um, Abu Dhabi and, and even here in Dubai on the Palm, the beachside hotels have actually done pretty well considering um, due to staycations on the weekends or even people taking, you know, the school holidays off and just driving down to Ras al-Khaimah and, and uh, you know, take, taking a, a couple of days of leave down there. So, uh, you know, I think the leisure segment um, in markets where there's a strong enough domestic base, um, you, you'll, you'll, you'll see pretty strong and pretty quick recovery, and we're already seeing that in the UAE. I think markets like Egypt, where... Uh, they depend a lot, particularly the, the leisure destinations on the coast, the Hulgadas, and, the, and um, they, those sorts of locations that require, you know, the, the continental European charter flights to bring in um, tourists, it, I think, are, are the ones that are going to take a little bit longer to recover because, A, you need the, the flights to come back, but B, you need um, the tourists to be willing to get on the flights and and also a lot of the government restrictions on occupancy are still in place. So even if you did have the flights coming in, you could only run at you know fifty percent occupancy or whatever it is. So they're really struggling, but not as much as the corporate segment. I think the corporate segment is is the one that's really hurting. Um, and obviously, we'll get a bit of insight or better insight from 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 Michael and and Amit. I mean, I'm more focused on the kind of investment side of things, but obviously try to keep a finger on the pulse from an operating perspective. So, Mark, talk a bit about some of the structural vulnerabilities that might have shown up in our sector. Um, anything that comes to mind that needs to be changed, um, and, and particularly if you put your investment lens on this uh, sector, 
Anything that you see that needs to be changed to make this sector more resilient, hopefully we'll never have to deal with it. another pandemic and we're going to all vote to make you responsible for that. But a, a, anything... Any structural issues that you've seen? Well, I think... The, Investment in hospitality is an interesting one because if you're looking at it purely from a kind of institutional yield perspective, um, particularly if you're looking here in, in, in the UAE and to an extent the rest of the Middle East, there's a lot of boxes that need to be ticked in order for something to be uh, transactable, let's put it that way. Um, you know, there's land ownership restrictions here. Um, a lot of the assets that have been built here historically have been kind of upper end of the of the of the kind of um, tier levels. So you know it's more kind of luxury or at least upscale hotels. So big build costs, big shiny things. Um, so the the investment cost initially was was very high, and you know very few leases in this market. Um, and and I think that in itself has scared off a lot of. Um, investors in the past and now given what's happening with, with COVID and, and COVID, you know, even in, in Europe, for example, hotels that were leased, the tenants who were leasing those hotels had kind of factored a worst case scenario of getting to, you know, maybe let's say 80% of your rent in a terrible year. But then COVID came along and all of a sudden you got to, to zero. Um, I mean, for a few months, obviously it wasn't a full year, but still, um, I think that's had a, a huge impact on investor sentiment. Um, the big um, secondary piece to that is the financing piece. Obviously, um, there's an, a certain amount of asset risk that's been highlighted by the fact that, you know, COVID really wipes out tourism um, or any other such big pandemic would, would have an effect like this if, if planes stop flying and people get locked down by their governments. Um, you know, so banks are sort of saying, well, if I've got the choice of um, lending on something like, I don't know, logistics is a very hot um, asset class at the moment. So, you know, if you, if you know that cold storage is going to be hugely in demand and be leased to a big supermarket chain that's only going to do better if lockdown tightens, um, then you're much more likely to, to, you know, be willing to finance something like that, where there's, you know, a, a 10, 15, 20 year lease to a reputable um, supplier in, in the F&B space um, and, and versus um, you know, a hotel that could overnight have, have the lights switched off and, and then you're left kind of holding the baby. So I think, I think that's one big bit of it. And the other bit is the valuation piece, right? It's, it's, I don't envy um, the valuations guys at, at, in any of these firms because it's very difficult. You know, you, your owner is saying, well, I, I spent X hundred million dollars or whatever it is building this thing. Um, and now you're turning around to me and telling me that it's, it's you know, certainly if you, if you do you know, if you use a DCF method, it's, it's not worth a huge amount of money right now, regardless of which property you are. Um, so if you're an investor and, you know, investors in large hospitality assets have the option to not necessarily invest in a specific market so they can invest globally. And, and you know, we've seen a, 
every time, you know, subprime was the same. There's this kind of flight to safety. We've seen it more recently with what's been going on in Hong Kong the last couple of years, with what's been going on in Lebanon. Um, you know, the money wants to go to continental Europe or to the UK, where they feel, you know, yes, the yields are very keen, but um, there's a certain amount of security there. You know, I've, I've literally had investors say to me, look, while I appreciate I can buy almost an identical asset with the same tenant in it, with the same lease in the UAE for 8% and in Europe for 4%, um, at least I know that when I come to exit in seven, eight years or whatever it is, that there's some sort of security around that yield being roughly the same um, when I exit versus the the, the UAE or, or the Middle East in general, where that, that yield could have gone um, could you know could go much higher? So there's that kind of supply risk, um, and and obviously a certain amount of political risk as well. I mean, I, I think you know although it's a very stable country here in the UAE, the, the region as a whole um, has its has its kind of um, its its own challenges from a political perspective. Yep, yep. Well, look, all those uh, uh, things taken into account, uh, um, uh, certainly investors would possibly underwrite these deals that are higher risk. Have there been many transactions in the last year in the region that you know of, Mark? The short answer to that is no. Um, and I think the reason is that there hasn't been a huge amount of transactions um, in the Middle East and, and, and Africa over the last, well, since COVID struck really, um, because the banks have been very good, the financiers have been very good. Obviously, they weren't as exposed as they were back in 2008. Um, a lot of stuff been, a lot of stuff's been put in place since then to ensure that they wouldn't have the same sort of um, risk as they, as they have uh, as they had back then. So they're not as underwater as they were, if at all, and, and they've been very reasonable with their their borrowers. So we haven't seen a huge amount of distress yet. Sure, there are NPLs out there. Um, here in the Middle East, it's not quite as vanilla as in you know, Asia, Europe, or the US, typically, where um, you know, the more developed markets, if something's not performing in the bank, you know, you, there's a risk that the bank will come calling. In this part of the world, there's Typically, asset owners are pretty diversified, um, and there's other things that they can offset that loan with, or there's conversations that can be had with the lenders to kind of, you know, draw out that that conversation. So there hasn't been um, that much pressure yet put on owners to exit. Um, and and again, like I said, there's there's challenges here in the region regarding finding buyers for these things, for you know the bid ask spread yep. is, is pretty big um, because, you know, like I said, these guys spend a lot of money building these things. They don't want to sell them at, at a fraction of that price. Um, and also there's restrictions on who can buy what where. Um, so it's it's not quite that easy. There's, there's a lot of owners who are willing to exit their assets, to be sure, but it's just a question of buyers willing to pay the price that they would be happy to sell at. Uh, Mark, a lot of the uh, uh, sovereign wealth funds in the region, they have been heavy investors in our industry for a very long time, and, and they are indeed global investors. Uh, do you think that focus might shift to more regional investments? Uh, and are there opportunities? Are there 
investment-grade assets that either are available today or might become available in the, in the, in the future? That's a good question. I mean, to be sure that the, most of the sovereign investors in this region have invested in, in, their, in their backyard. Um, you know, the Mubadlas and Aldars um, and ICDs have, have typically invested primarily in their backyards. Some of them haven't even actually left their emirate or the, or the, the country. Um, some of them have, obviously, ICD invest in hotels overseas um, and have done. Uh, I think the, the and, and, you know, I'm sure Ahmed will have something to say about this, but... Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about them looking at, you know, multifamily or industrial um, warehousing in, in Europe and the States and, and the UK, whatever it is. But um, there hasn't been a huge amount of money going out just yet from um, this part of the world into the hotel assets at the moment in Europe and stuff. Having said that, they're all very keen on distressed stuff. If it does come up, I think there's going to be quite a lot of buyers out there with money um, when pricing does come down to a sensible level. Regionally, yes, certainly. I think that's the easy step to take. I think, you know, if you're um, a sovereign wealth group out of the UAE and you want to start growing overseas, you know, you could be buying stuff in, in Saudi much more easily than you know, taking the step of going to Africa or Europe. I mean, Africa is a, a an interesting one, and, and to an extent, some of the neighboring countries here have the same issue in terms of um, the scale of assets available on the market in terms of invest, investment-grade assets, right? There just isn't that much um, product out there for these guys to buy. And certainly, to move to somewhere like Africa, uh, a lot of these investors will be looking for some sort of platform, um, and you know, there's really a limited amount of um, options for them out there, and and again, you know, even more, right? So I'll I'll uh, turn it over to Sam here in a bit. But one last question: Are there uh, uh, alternative uh, investors? I, for example, is institutional money looking at Middle East as a market? Are there private equity companies? Are there uh, uh, hedge funds that might be looking to invest in this sector because? Uh, uh, obviously, pandemic has, has uh, uh, presented an opportunity, though, as you mentioned, the bid-ask spread seems to be very wide, I, and I'm not sure if it'll ever come to a point that the transactions can be uh, uh, more lucrative. But any thoughts on uh, uh, non-traditional investors, if I may use that technology, for the region? I'm going to be a politician about that, um, <laughs> about that question, and say, uh, for me, the non-traditional investors in hospitality real estate here in, in the UAE, and, and um, it's not so much the case in, in Saudi because there's all the Saudis, you know, private Saudis who invested in stuff. But here in the UAE, a lot of the um, investment has been, well, pretty much all of it has been either sovereign or very wealthy local families. And I think what well, I mean, and I'm starting to have these conversations or I have been having these conversations is um, wealthy family groups from the subcontinent or from Asia um, looking this way um, and potentially looking at those opportunities. The issue is the, the issue is one around yield and pricing, basically. 
because to compensate for that perceived risk. I mean, the, the one thing here in, in, in this part of the world is there is a lot of vacant land. Um, and so that, you know, much like the, 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 the resi market, although the resi market, by the way, just as an aside, has had a great rebound here in the UAE. I think there's a lot of foreigners who've come here over the Christmas period and seen um, the benefits of the UAE and, 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 have, and have bought resi here, as well as people moving into the villa market. The apartment market's struggling. But I think the same view of, well, there's kind of an unlimited amount of supply that could potentially be developed here um, is, is a big risk for a lot of these larger institutional investors. And, and you know, so until we see um, yields move out into the double digits, I, I don't know if we're going to see that many institutions coming in from overseas. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, Mark. Let me turn it over to Sam and I'll be back with you in a moment. Sam. Yes, sure. uh, Mark, uh, can we continue a little yeah. bit on that foreign investment uh, sure. discussion? And uh, what, what is, for those who are possibly eye on, eyeing their opportunity to invest in the region, how would you, could you just share some thoughts on the advantages? And then you already touched on the challenges, but give some advantages and maybe some additional on, on the challenge side. Well, I mean, a huge advantage of, of um, the UAE is that it's, it's a tax haven. Um, you know, it, it's a very sophisticated and, and stable market for a lot of reasons. So, you know, if you're thinking about developing an asset somewhere here, things will happen on time as planned. Um, the government piece in terms of licensing and process is extremely straightforward. It's, it's, I've lived in a lot of places. Um, you know, I have numerous passports and I've lived all over, the, all over the world, including Switzerland. You know, the opposite ends of the spectrum are sort of Switzerland and Kenya um, and the Bahamas. And, and this is by far the most efficient government process system I've, I've ever seen. And, you know, just the vaccination rollout in itself has been incredible. Um, you know, and, and getting necessary approvals and license and transfer of titles and all that sort of stuff is, is just so simple here. So, you know, that's a huge positive if you're looking at investing in, in this market is, um, you know, the, the currency is pegged to the dollar. So there's, there's no worry there from a foreign, a forex risk. Um, you know, you, you get the tax breaks. Connectivity is second to none with uh, Emirates and Etihad. Um, you know, everybody, the, 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 the risk of people doing something dubious um, in, a, in any process or, or being overly difficult is, is close to zero. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of benefits. And I think specifically from a, a tourism perspective, that connectivity and vaccination piece are going to be increasingly important going forward. You know, um, I, I just heard on the radio on my way home this evening that 100 and, uh, so 125 vaccines per 100 people have been issued now. So, you know, that that shows you what, what and it's, it's number one in the world now um, in terms of the number of people that have been double vaccinated uh, against COVID. Yeah, I, I, just as an aside, I, I find it quite amusing when people sort of say, you know, and, and I, I don't mind if you don't want to get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated, but I find it quite amusing when, when people are sort of saying, well, you know, I don't want to get a vaccina vaccination passport or whatever it is. And yet, if you want to travel around Africa or even parts of Asia or Latin America, you're going to have gone to your local doctor and got three or four different jabs if you're a European or American just to be able to travel down there. And you didn't ask, you didn't ask who manufactured them and how they've been stored and all that sort of stuff. You, know, you just went and bought them so you could go on holiday. And now that we're saying, well, you know, you, you've got to get one of these jabs. 
it's it's a massive drama. Um, you know, I I got a, I arrived in Nairobi once uh, with a valid Yellows Fever certificate, and they turned around to me at the airport and said, "Nah, we think this is fake. We're going to give you another jab." And I said, "Sure, why not? I haven't had one in a couple of years. I'll take it." And they just they gave me a vaccine on the spot in Nairobi airport at two a.m. And I'm you know I live to tell the tale. So you know, I, and when I, when I was born in Africa forty years ago. Who knows what they were, you know, sticking in my arm as a baby, and uh, you know, it was probably the same needle across the whole hospital, you know. So <laughs> I, I wasn't sitting there going, oh, "Well, no, if it's not AstraZeneca, I'm not having it." You know, it was just here you go. This is what you get, buddy. So you know, I'm very kind of gung ho about the, about the vaccination situation. Yeah. Um- now, the industry as a whole, I mean, the hospitality uh, investment industry, uh, what changes have has happened now during the pandemic? Or has it, or, and if there has been some changes, what do you think will stay uh, the post-pandemic period? Uh, well, I think there's going to be even more scrutiny of deals, um, particularly when it comes to leases. Um, what's been quite interesting also, well, the common strength of a lease, let's put it that way. Um, I think also what's been interesting in the F&B space is I've, because I, I, you know, I oversee the leasing team at Camax as well, and, and it's been quite a learning curve for me on the commercial leasing side of things because that's not a background I had. But F&B operators turning around and saying we're not going to pay for fit out, and um, you know we'd quite like to not pay a fixed rent either. We'll do a turnover rent, and you pay for fit out as the landlord, um, and, and landlords are, are starting to accept that. So it's more of a kind of HMA type structure, but in the F&B space, um, and hotels also sort of saying, "Yeah, we need to diversify our, our or de-risk our revenue to an extent." And so, a lot more operators talking about outsourcing their F&B space to a third-party operator who will then hopefully pay them a fixed rent, um, and and then and and also just you know make the the hotel more of a destination more of an attractive F&B destination because you know if you if you've got a vanilla hotel xyz brand i'm not going to name a brand because they're all friends of mine i don't want to get shot but you know if you've got a, if you've got xyz brand a beats hotel um you know and and, and you know you've just got a a, a generic F&B space downstairs all day dining whatever beats all day dining extravaganza um you know versus having a hard rock cafe or whatever it is, you know, you're not going to drive external F&B or even internal F&B as, as well as you potentially could. So I think there's there's that's one shift I've seen that um, I find quite interesting. Yeah. My, just my final and short question is that, uh, like here in, in okay. Europe, and particularly in Northern Europe, we have these uh, third-party operators. Uh, uh, hotel management agreements are out of the question over here. Do you see this? Uh, any views on that for for the Middle East region? Is that is that the time for that kind of uh, uh, agreement setups for with hotels? Yeah, Banny's going to shoot me for not having mentioned him before. I think, um, but yeah, there, there are there are um, these third party operators that you know. Again, people often forget that the Middle East, and again, we're talking generically. Um, but the UAE is very much part of the Middle East and maybe it's ahead of the rest of the, the markets in this region, but it is still an emerging market. You know, we're not at the same stage that Europe and the US are, um, or Japan for that matter. And so, you know, Africa is a step below um, on, the, on, the, on the curve, 
the UAE and the Middle East are a step above. You can just look out of my window and see all the cranes and know, you know, that this is still an emerging market. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think what we're seeing in, in the developed markets is filtering down here. Um, and so, yes, those third-party operators sandwiched between a franchise agreement and an owner, I think that we could see more of that going forward. And it, and it kind of replaces the role of the asset manager to an extent, right? I mean, if you if you build that relationship with the operator, um, the third-party wide brand operator, and then put a franchise on top, it's quite a good model. I mean, you need to be a little bit careful in structuring that um, because, obviously, you need to make sure there's enough fees to go around, enough revenue to go around. Um, the last thing you want to do is, is end up with something that's more costly to the owner. Um, but yeah, definitely something we're seeing more of. And, and Aleph, I'm giving them a shout out. Vanny, you can you can send me a check in the mail. Um, you know they've been they've been growing quite aggressively throughout. Um, it's obviously a tough year for them last year, but they they seem to be doing really well. So great. Well, thank you, Mark, and uh, back to you, Abid. So, Mark, one last question before we bring our, our next guest up. Uh, um, Give it to if you don't know him soon, buddy. <laughs> I would. <laughs> The, 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 is it, is it uh, uh, survival for the industry or is it time to rebuild and build resilience into the industry? And, and what do we do to get there? Well, good question. I mean, I think there's here, you know, particularly there's, this, there's been a bit of a diversification in terms of the, um, the segments that they're looking to attract. So, you know, Russell Keimer is very much going for the leisure segment and, and as a result, they've done very well through the pandemic. They're not trying to be another Dubai. Um, in Dubai, we've seen people like Rove emerge um, and be very successful. I think there's certainly space um, in there for the kind of leisure, mid to lower end leisure market, the young couples, you know, rather than the wealthy families or, uh, you know, wealthy couples. I think young couples from... Uh, source markets coming here to stay at a rove at you know less than a hundred dollars a night. I think there's a there's a certainly a big market for that, um, just to kind of push volume into the retail and the entertainment that, that you know places like Dubai offers. Um, you know I'm not going to uh, throw a Radna under the bus like I said I would uh, regarding who's going to pay all these big salaries that she she wants us to pay in the industry because margins are very thin already as they are. Um, so you know I think. I totally agree that, you know, and I, and I sat on the board of Utali College in, in Kenya, which is the largest hotel school in Africa for, for three years. I did a full board term there. And I, I agree that the industry doesn't pay very well, but there is um, a huge population out there that is aspiring to get into um, the industry, um, even in the service uh, jobs that aren't necessarily overly well paid, but it is still a massive employer. Um, and even here in Dubai, you see the Kenyans and the East Africans that have come up here from the Delhi College to work in the industry. So unless we're going to completely rethink things and say we're going to price an extra 20% higher because we're going to pay our staff 20% higher, and consumers are willing to to foot you know, to just swallow that price jump um, on the back of being socially responsible, then it's, it's, it's not as easy to unpack as just sort of saying, well, we need to pay people more. Well, fair enough. And, and uh, hold that thought. We'll come to uh, come back together, and, and we need to banter that a little more uh, because I think industry is in a bit of a pickle right now. But uh, uh, I'm sure Michael would have a lot of input for that. Thank you. Thank you for all your input, Mark. Uh, please stay with us. We'll have you back, uh, Sam. If it's okay, let's bring 
Amit in, in, in the, uh, let's see what asset management is all about. Amit, thanks for being with us. Hey, uh, Amit, um, thanks for having me over. I think uh, we are in an interesting uh, time in our lives. Uh, and I hope, like you mentioned, uh, we don't see to enjoy this kind of uh, change uh, or a paradigm shift in the way business is conducted again. Uh, yeah. Middle East as a whole, I think, has done pretty hey, well. Amit, before you go there, if I may, so, sorry to interrupt Please. you. Uh, we've just barely learned how to manage hotels. What is asset management all about? Is it is it a pure hocus pocus? Is there something to it? Uh, thank God no one I work for is listening to this. Uh, <laughs> asset management, uh, I, I think in perspective, is all about checks and balances. Yeah, It's about uh, people who know the business, who have been uh, managing hotels uh, in operations, going back on a different side, looking at transactions, uh, what value those transactions bring into the business, and as well as how uh, the teams that are being uh, given to manage these hotels how they assist us, how we can assist them, how can uh, we support them in the best practices that we know between different asset classes that we own, uh, as well as between different operators that we own and we work with. And I think this is the mix of asset management or what asset management is all about. So it, 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 as uh, with a focus on asset management, thank you for sharing that because it's a new discipline that quite candidly people still haven't understood the value of it from an asset manager's lens and your peer group in the region particularly, what things are you guys focused on for this uh, recovery? I think the start of it, uh, every day we check is uh, what new destinations have airlift uh, moving into the region. Uh, I think the most uh, looked up for as the UK destination as a as a destination where uh, all the key areas or locations in the Middle East, uh, we have significant airlift coming out of UK and going into UK, which is big business for every sector, uh, be it the uh, finance, be it uh, hospitality, be it real estate. Uh, that is, this cross-border relationship is very important. So this is something is uh, very keen uh, as a focus for all of us, uh, how much of the airlift uh, that is coming up. Uh, government regulations, uh, how we are able to manage uh, the pandemic on our side and how do we look at this as a complete reset and we start as a zero base on our cost, on our revenues, on everything else. And it's as if we are reopening uh, the industry as a whole once again. So it, 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 I think that's a great point. Let's spend a little more time on the reset. And, and Mark was talking about some of the, the changes from investment point of view. From operating side of things, and, and you have a, a great vantage point in uh, the uh, uh, entire market as in Middle East, talk about some of the changes, some of the seismic changes that will remain in the industry uh, uh, and things that we have learned as a result of this pandemic. Okay, so Hama as an association represents roughly around uh, owners of uh, 700 hotels within the region. So that's a lot of bandwidth when it comes to uh, cross-border relationships, understanding of what we are doing, say, in uh, Dubai with an asset versus Rasul Kema versus uh, the holy cities of Makkah, Medina, or uh, be it in Riyadh, Jeddah, or Muscat. Uh, 
one of the key aspects in this is also to realize that uh, as an industry, uh, some of the factors that affect us directly are our fixed costs. And how do we manage those fixed costs relatively? So be it uh, talking to uh, government entities about uh, utilities, uh, about uh, to talk to the companies that uh, we work with on other uh, labor or other uh, challenges that we face, or it is just our pure operations, uh, uh, working with the operators, which has been very keen. And uh, we have been, uh, you know, it, it's been a challenging time even for them. Uh, from a PNL perspective, so how do we work together on cash flows, uh, working with the banks uh, as uh, institutions? Because uh, in the end of the day, uh, a lot of the business that we work with is uh, is uh, with the debt. Uh, so the equity portion of it has been gotten wiped out with uh, all the hotels being closed. So how do we manage the debt that we have with them? And this has been very crucial for us as an industry. Are, are hotels in general, are they able to service their debt these days? Have there been programs um, that the government might have uh, uh, um, subsidies issued out for some of the hotel owners so that they can weather the storm? So I think uh, overall uh, within the market, uh, the banks and the governments have uh, worked closely together to ensure that there is liquidity in the business. Uh, with regards to uh, servicing of debt, uh, at least of, uh, let's call them friends and family that uh, we know of, uh, they have been able to manage it. Uh, something Mark uh, had touched upon is that most of the business, hospitality business owners here, uh, they are quite diversified. So hospitality is one aspect of the business. So that makes a big difference. A uh, lot of the banks have vested interest uh, with, within hospitality because for them, sustainability of this business is very important as a city or a country initiative. So this is where the government has assisted uh, big time. Uh, just in uh, just in UAE itself, uh, if I have to take a number, there was almost 73 billion uh, dirhams of uh, support that was given to the banking industry in order to support the other allied industries that were part and parcel of the ecosystem. Fabulous. Okay. One more question, and, and I'll hand it over to Sam. Um, any innovations that are new to the industry as a result of the pandemic that will help us be more efficient? Uh, Mark had talked about the labor challenges. It's, it's consistent throughout uh, that where do you find the skills and that sort of stuff. Any thoughts on innovations that will be implemented as we are uh, on our way to recover? Uh, interestingly, when we looked at all of our PNLs as a, as a whole, the biggest things that uh, stuck out is all our utilities and POMEC. And this is something that we looked into very deeply when we look at operational hotels. But when you close a hotel, everything gets skewed. And these are the aspects that stand out a lot. So all the innovations that we have seen in the last uh, uh, 12 to 18 months have been focused about how we can manage, maintain, and elevate and make these uh, systems more efficient. Because quite a few of these are very old uh, legacy systems that just kept being built up. Uh, uh, everybody was very busy building hotels and uh, innovation uh, on these aspects were not uh, looked upon. 
but now when you look at uh, the life cycle of all these assets and you're looking at refurbishments, et cetera, uh, this is one of the aspects that everybody is very focused on. And uh, be it uh, energy management systems, uh, uh, be it uh, guest management systems, but which are more focused on how do we protect the asset even when they are closed uh, and, uh, you know, anything and everything to do with uh, this aspect of fixed cost. Uh, I think the key innovation has come through this. Fabulous. Well, thank you for that, Ahmed. Let me hand it over to Sam and I'll be back with you in a moment. Sam. Thank you. Uh, Amit, uh, maybe we can continue on, on the topic you mentioned about uh, the role of technology. What are some sort of a technology that has now been introduced and uh, maybe invested in because of uh, uh, the changes that you uh, see been happening? I think uh, with regards to POMEC, I mentioned a, a, a few of these systems. Uh, one of the key aspects is also analytics. Uh, how do you look at dashboards and everything else? But more holistically from every aspect of the PNL uh, and life. Uh, these uh, have become more and more prominent here. Uh, keep in mind as well uh, in uh, Dubai, if I can take it as an example, a uh, lot of uh, investment has gone into startups and the incubation of startups here. You already have uh, government funded uh, five incubate, uh, incubation hubs, uh, which have uh, brought out a lot of interesting uh, systems and processes or companies that uh, uh, support us with that. And uh, we have always tested uh, these uh, products into the hotels that uh, are part of the membership. And we have seen this elevate a lot. And these, uh, one of the examples I can give you is, is a company that uh, looked at enhancing the content and the content management on the online systems, uh, which earlier was not that much of a focus. Uh, uh, relations with the OTAs have enhanced. Uh, so a lot of the OTA management systems on our back of houses have enhanced because of that. And we have been in uh, very close uh, touch and talks with the OTA, the, some of the biggest OTA platforms. Uh, uh, talk about uh, some distribution systems. Uh, I think uh, one thing we lose out in these conversations is uh, FMB. FMB has been a very driving force uh, when you're looking at a staycation uh, market. And a uh, lot of the biggest hotels here, uh, we have had some uh, amazing, innovative local companies that have come out. And this has basically elevated the... Uh, the hotels as well and the deliveries of these hotels because FMB as a key action point as an industry was something that was always missed out because I always believe uh, restauranters and hoteliers are two different uh, mixes of the same uh, pie and it has to be looked at differently as well. And this has been very important and key. Um, yeah, and, and, and many more to come. Yeah. Now, I find it interesting also that uh, uh, during the pandemic, some well-known restaurants have... Uh, added a sort of a, a, a cloud kitchen or whatnot on the other side of Dubai in order to cater for the takeaway. So they deliver the, if you're living in, let's say, DIFC and your restaurant is located there, but on the other side of Dubai, you have uh, uh, people who have been before coming to that restaurant, but things were closed, so they have opened up actually rest, a kitchen closer so they can deliver efficiently to the customer. And I thought that's a very innovative idea that I have heard about in Dubai. Hundred percent. I think uh, FMB in, as an uh, industry moved very strongly during this time. You have more restaurants. You have more experiences. Uh, we have had, uh, you know, uh, uh, a whole bunch of restaurants that have opened in the middle of the desert, 
in certain very nice quaint locations where uh, earlier no one would have thought of it being a business model. But in the last uh, six to eight months of good weather, uh, people have all been all over the place. Uh, some of the uber luxury resorts always have done better, but then uh, that has also opened us uh, a lot of key markets across uh, the city and the country. And this goes across board in the beat. Uh, you talk about Qatar, beat Saudi, the remote luxury hotel business or FMB business has grown more than anything else. And these were markets that were not that, they were very unique as a value proposition, but now they have become a unique, there's a waiting list for people to go there. Yeah. My, my final question is, you know, I'm particularly interested about the Middle East and, and, and the UAE is the, the the development of different styles of hotels for the different different markets. And uh, we talk very much over here in Europe about the experiential travelers who want to, uh, they, they insist when they travel, they want to have an experienced location. They, want, they are keen on uh, green values, they're keen on sustainability. Uh, where do you see this uh, happening in, in, in the region where you are at? This is this is very strong in every tourism board's uh, value chain. In every uh, uh, you know in in Dubai and in Abu Dhabi, uh, you have in Dubai you have the Dubai Municipality, and I think uh, the green certification and the green panel is very strong. So uh, we have been as uh, as Hama uh, very much involved with all the entities in developing the new codes. Uh, the new building uh, systems and checks and balances that is needed and how as hospitality we want to promote sustainability as a whole and this has been very key into every engagement that we do and every development that we are looking for this is the value metrics because like I started this conversation with respect to uh, how we looked at our fixed cost uh, and that was the key driver for everything is because uh, if you can save any money that uh, on that it just has a direct flow through yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Amit, for sharing this, and uh, over to you, Amit. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Amit, one, one more question before I bring our uh, next guest in. Uh, it, it, talk a little bit about the, the booking patterns. Are there differences today than they were pre-pandemic? Uh, are people booking okay. further out? It's very short-term. Uh, what are you seeing in, in also that would uh, lead to performance of different classes of hotels? Is one class performing better than the other? Okay, so two different things. Uh, uh, this is the most fun that we have every day is about uh, understanding booking patterns and there is no uh, thumb rule to it anymore. Uh, earlier, just to put some touch points, uh, during the season, the booking window would be anything between 30 to 90 days. Uh, off season would be anything between uh, uh, two weeks uh, to maybe three weeks maximum. Uh, today we are looking at booking windows of uh, two to three days. Um, uh, weekends, uh, sometimes maybe even just one. So booking window and patterns are to totally skewed. Uh, one of the key, uh, key points is again airlift. Any city, any country, like for example, recently Saudi opened its borders. Uh, within a matter of three to four hours, uh, most of our booking windows uh, changed. And these are the major uh, 
challenges that we face, even with uh, how we uh, take care of our employees, how we manage uh, business, how we manage stocks, all of our uh, capital expenses, any uh, uh, renovation, redevelopment, anything that we're doing in, these booking patterns are not helping us as of now. But I think uh, we need to take what comes to us. We are very privileged in this part of the world to enjoy uh, these uh, first world problems, which would be that we have business on the books, uh, our hotels are open, uh, they are doing well. Our FMB is sustaining itself, is doing way better than what we were doing in nine, 2019 as well. And uh, we have to enjoy this. Uh, when it comes to the category or segmentation of hotels, uh, one of the categories that always did well uh, as a whole, but uh, has gone through the roof is the Uber luxury hotels, uh, uh, key destination hotels, small boutique hotels. Uh, they have done well. Uh, if you are a, as an inventory or a mix, if you are a villa hotel, uh, you can be in the middle of the desert, and we have a couple of them here. They have done better than any of the beach assets because there was price of privacy. There was a beautiful pool. Uh, you connected with nature. Uh, it was peaceful, uh, especially with the pandemic and all the the white noise around it. I think uh, that kind of serenity had a dollar value to it, and people were ready to uh, pay that. Then comes uh, luxury, but even in luxury, there were two different aspects. Uh, one was the the beached hotels. The beached hotels uh, did fantabulously well across board, across uh, all the cities uh, within Middle East. If you were on the beach, if you did not do well, there was something to, very wrong with the way you managed your business because most of them trended extremely high. City hotels, uh, there was a lot of change in the way we sold our city hotels. Uh, mostly we sold them as urban uh, resorts uh, because you had a lot of pools, you had a lot of FMB, and those did well. The hotels which were very corporate within the city hotel uh, dynamics, those were the ones that were challenged. Uh, the rest of them, uh, it all depended on, depends on the pricing. Uh, the rest of the budget hotel or the five-star uh, upscale hotels, uh, the challenge was or the challenge or the opportunity was all based on pricing. If you priced your hotel well, people are more than happy uh, to get out of the house, uh, go spend a weekend or a couple of days or work in a hotel, enjoy the FMB, enjoy the pool. And, uh, you know, uh, it worked very well for us. Well, thank you, Amit. Thank you for all that insight. Please stay with us. Uh, we will have you back shortly. But at this point, let's bring... Michael Sager in, in, in uh, Michael, thanks for your time. Thank you. Good afternoon, good evening, or wherever you are in the world. And yep. I just realized you put us in a nice order, you know. You started with uh, the investors, uh, with Mark, uh, who makes the promises uh, to the owners, you know, and get the developers going. Then uh, you put uh, uh, Ahmed on the case, you know, asset management, controlling the whole thing. And as usual, operations has to keep the promise and perform. So thank you for that. Well, well uh, Michael, it's uh, Mark sells the dream. You have to service the nightmare. So uh, hence your role. Uh, uh, let's it, it, look. The the industry stats are pretty encouraging in the region. But I'm going to continue on to what Amit was mentioning. Uh, relative to performance of the hotels in your portfolio, 
Can you corroborate uh, some of the stuff that Amit was talking about as to booking patterns and what hotels have performed better than the others? Yeah, I mean, the booking uh, performance and uh, the booking pattern has changed. Uh, it became shorter over the years, and now since the pandemic, it's completely out of the window. I mean, uh, you know, nothing is as it was. Uh, um, everything is reinventing itself. And uh, so we we have looked at this year. Uh, we learned from uh, 2020 big time and said, okay, this year is all about rebuilding the business, looking at it uh, from a complete uh, different uh, standpoint. It's almost like uh, I said today to someone, it's almost like Formula One. Uh, uh, 21 is the qualifying, you know, kind of uh, trying out everything, what's uh, performing best, and then, uh, you know, uh, getting back to the uh, to achieving the, the pole position when the race is on in, in 22. So uh, yeah, we're you mentioned uh, we're we're in the same boat, but I would say we're not in the same boat. We're um, we're in the same storm, but in different boats. But everybody is paddling uh, towards the same direction. Well, that that's a great analogy, and I'll I'll definitely have to remember that. It, uh, talk a bit about the the demographics of your clients. Are they shifting in any way? The feeder markets that your hotels host, are they different today than they were pre-pandemic? Oh, yeah, completely. Uh, I mean, uh, Dubai and the UAE is uh, the five top feeder markets. They're completely out of the window. I mean, uh, India, uh, we know, is has uh, you know big challenges at the moment. We have uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, almost 10% uh, normally producing. They were closed until last week. No travel in, no travel out not even for uh, uh, Saudis uh, themselves. UK, no travel corridor you know, whatsoever. Then we have uh, China. China is locked up. And uh, I had uh, an ATM virtual uh, call yesterday with a gentleman, um, uh, president of, of uh, he, he's a public speaker and, and, and president of the Chinese Investment uh, Forum. He said, uh, so far, 510 million uh, Chinese uh, people have been vaccinated and nobody can leave the country until at least 80% are uh, vaccinated. And then they will visit only countries that are safe to travel, easy access, uh, value for money and uh, welcoming uh, to Chinese business. So I think UAE is, is, is perfectly positioned for that. So I really think um, business will be back next year and ramping up uh, slowly. Uh, we have in, in our hotels in, in Ajman, in Sharjah, uh, the Northern Emirates, uh, we're lucky enough the last six weeks, we were between 96 to 100% full. When I talk to my colleagues in Europe, they nearly uh, fall off the chair when they hear these numbers. And um, we can be fortunate that, you know, the Northern Emirates, they had no, no lit, no cap, uh, whereas Dubai went from 60 to 80. And during the ATM last week, it was uh, announced that Dubai can uh, be back to 100% occupancy at the hotels. So uh, the Russian market is, is in, Ukrainian market, so the CIS countries, um, because they're also vaccinated, uh, they have different approach on travel. They love the Emirates, so um, 
Yeah, nothing, nothing is as it was. You know, we had 20% from Europe not coming. We had uh, uh, 16% from Asia and Dubai not coming. 7% from US not coming. So almost 45% is not traveling anymore. So you need to live off the other 55% and they're also limited. So, Michael, you just uh, participated in Arabian Travel Mart and, and hats off to uh, the industry for putting the first big event together. Tell us, what was the sentiment like? Uh, what were the buyers thinking about? What kind of conversations were you having? It was very positive. Um, first of all, it was, okay, less, less, less exhibitors, less visitors. Um, however, it gave the ones that participated a better exposure. Um, you had wider corridors, you had, you know, uh, uh, prominent stands, you had more time to, to speak with the individual uh, business partners. I did uh, four or five press interviews, you know, on, on our new openings. Uh, uh, we were opening a hotel, Ecos uh, Hotel in Al-Fajan near the expo site. Um, so people are interested to say, hey, uh, during this climate, you're opening hotels, you're, you're having a, a big stand, uh, we see the consistency, and, and I think this is for us giving it back to the, uh, to the hospitality, giving it back to um, yeah, uh, the United Arab Emirates, how they dealt with this crisis, and I always say, you know, 50% of a crisis happens in, in people's head and 50% on the ground. So let's work on the 50% that we can control. And I think ATM was a great platform to, to work on those 50%. And uh, everyone was really positive. Nobody had their heads down. I, I, I went and visited other ATM occasions when uh, uh, there was a bit negativity and people were very concerned. But this time I saw there's a, there's a new dawn, there's a new, uh, uh, yeah, there's a new movement uh, coming. Well, that's, that's fabulous. Uh, a bit of optimism is, is very, very important to keep things going. And the, and the world is indeed headed in the right direction. We still have a long ways to go, but definitely we headed in the right direction. Let me, let me hand it over to Sam, uh, Michael, and I'll be back with you in a moment. Sam. Yes, Michael, that's uh, nice to hear what you told us about uh, the ATM. Uh, during this time of the, the pandemic and now when the hotels are open, what, in what way have you seen that their customer expectations may have changed and, uh, and how have you responded to that? Well, you know, our guests, uh, what, what they want, uh, and we're talking mainly about uh, the leisure business, they, they want an experience. You know? They have been locked up for months or almost you can say years, it's uh, it, people have the money, they have the time, they have the motivation, and if they get uh, uh, a chance to hop on on the plane, they will. I just flew in uh, a day before the ATM from Frankfurt from Germany. The plane was, it was a, a, a 777 uh, from Emirates, the plane was 90% full. And I was one of the corporate, a few corporate uh, uh, travelers, and the rest were millennials, were, were people you could see, they had their rucksack, they had their camera, they had, uh, you know, they had all the stuff that, uh, that you were not seeing for, for a long time. And uh, 
they were eager to get an experience. So what we need to deliver is the experience. Um, they're concerned about uh, hygiene, of course, about safety, security, but will I still get my experience? And I think Dubai has done a great job in, in, in ticking all these boxes. Obviously, you can only hop on a plane uh, with your uh, negative PCR test. But even if you don't, if you would not have that or you need a second one, there is at, at um, Dubai arrivals, there are, I don't know how many, 30, 40 uh, booths where you could have uh, another test. Um, you have a great welcome at the, at the immigration. Um, you wear the mask. Uh, uh, there is social distancing in place. Um, so the disinfection protocols at the hotels, I mean, before uh, we were always as operators hiding housekeeping, you know, clean the lobby at night, do the lifts at night, uh, and every, everything was spotless. It's not that we were not cleaning the rooms and, or, or having exceptional cleanliness in place before the pandemic. We, we're doing the same, but now there's another layer on top of it, which is disinfection. Yeah? Okay, that might not have happened before to that extent, almost clinical, like, like in the hospital. But now it's not just important that you do your job. It's important that to be seen doing the job. So it's perfectly acceptable and even expected that you see housekeepers with a mask, with a rubber gloves, walking through the lobby with the spray uh, bottle, uh, uh, cleaning and wiping uh, surfaces. So we're doing what we can. We're sealing rooms almost as if you think, you know, I've only seen this in the detective stories. It's a crime scene and you put seals on doors. Now we put this for every clean room. Yeah? But people, this is the new normal and we have to do this. We need to sell on top of the experience. We need to sell the security level to give them peace of mind. Yeah. And then my, my, my final question is relating to technology implementation in, in your hotels. Uh, I have seen now, particularly because of the pandemic now, the, the customers are expecting keyless access. In, fa in fact, they're even using their mobile device to, to turn on TVs or close the curtains. How far are you in that and where do you see that going? Uh, in, in the, which direction? Well, this has elevated and, and just sped up the whole process. Uh, we're implementing all this at, at our newest hotel near the expo site. Uh, there is, we call it a digital guest journey, which is actually from, from the booking to uh, when the guest is leaving, you know, being in touch with, uh, with the guest and, and trying to return us into a repeat business. Uh, online check-in. Uh, touchless uh, um, interaction at the hotel, um, ordering of uh, food or any items, uh, um, opening the door with your phone, um, being in touch, chatting with the guest uh, over uh, social media. Um, all this is the new normal and at the newest hotel we're, we're running, which is a millennial-minded hotel, which uh, has a games room, which has a, a laundrette, which has uh, features that you would normally uh, you know, think you, you find in a, in, a, in a spacey hotel. But the reality is the future has landed. We're here today. The pandemic has, if there's one good thing that it has taught us is go digital, go touchless. You need to elevate yourself into the 21st century.
Yeah, very good. Well, thank you. And uh, perhaps, uh, Abid, you can continue with your, with your questions. Michael, look into the future for us, if you would, and talk about future of tourism in the region. Um, I know there are lots of large events, World Expo, World Cup in, in Qatar. Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is spending uh, a lot of focus and emphasis on travel and tourism. What do you think this, this industry will be like and what, what is the future in the region? Again, I think uh, tourism and, and hospitality will be back uh, pretty quick. It's a very resilient uh, industry. Hoteliers are the most creative and resilient people uh, on the planet. Um, they can make uh, something out of nothing. And I think we have in the region, we have all the ingredients uh, uh, for the recipe for success to, to cater the world. And you just named a few of them. You have the, the World Expo, you have the, the World Cup coming. Um, Dubai is, is a huge marketing machine, you know, uh, uh, with all the new initiatives and uh, uh, the destination that they're building, you know, uh, with uh, AIM Dubai, with the, 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 the world's biggest uh, Ferris wheel, which is topping the, the, the London Eye. I mean, there's always something new coming and, and uh, the location is reinventing uh, itself. I think we have a growing middle class worldwide and let's put the pandemic aside. There, there, there is a life after, after the pandemic. People will have more disposable income. People will travel. Uh, people are up for an experience and the region has everything that people are looking for. It has the adventure, it has the experience. Saudi Arabia, with their vision 2030, is opening up. It has never been easier to get a visa to travel into Saudi Arabia. I, I, I know how difficult it was in the past. You, you needed you know, invitation letter, a chamber of commerce, stamp here, a visa there. It was very difficult. And besides the religious tourism, there was no chance. And Saudi Arabia has so much to offer, uh, such a, a, a big culture. And, and with the new Red Sea developments that are happening out there, it's amazing. It, it, the, the world has not seen what, what they will be offering. They basically bring the, the Caribbean and the, um, the, the Maldives uh, into the Middle East. Uh, you will have water villas, you will have uh, uh, everything you can wish for. So the region has a lot to offer. Fabulous. Michael, one last question before we bring all the panelists back together. Uh, as of April year to date, STR showed uh, for Middle East, generally speaking, there was a decline of 2.2% in ref part. Now, that might not be same shop comparison because the first quarter of 2020, the, the world was still ticking along before everything stopped. Uh, are, are you seeing better trends in your portfolio uh, in the region? And, and uh, talk a bit about the rate. Uh, Ahmed was talking about pricing and whether the pricing is correct. A lot of the hoteliers typically try to shift the demand by dropping the rates. Are you seeing that in the markets in Middle East? 
Yes, absolutely. And that's something that the, the asset uh, management colleagues are, uh, don't really like because that cuts into the, the profits, of course. I think the demand is there, occupancy is there, but you cannot bank occupancy, right? Um, in the end, it has to translate into cash and into profit. Um, I mean, the occupancy is is there to an expense of, of, of the rate. I mean, um, we have Dubai is a little bit uh, better off than the rest of the Middle East. So Dubai has seen a REFPA increase of 5% uh, year to date, whereas the whole Middle East has a decline of, of 2.2%. We're at an average rate at $128. Um, this is great for other regions. It's not great for our regions. We used to have uh, uh, completely different numbers. So uh, ha have, having occupancies in the 60s is okay. And uh, I mean, you can't complain. And if you complain, you complain on a very high uh, level. But uh, the rate is in some hotels almost yeah, down 40, 50% of what they used to have. You can be in a five-star hotel these days for half price, uh, and, and, and people are enjoying that. And I must say it has never been uh, better to upsell uh, than now because people want bigger rooms, they want more space, it's affordable. So uh, we, can, we, we see that actually uh, guests are happy to be uh, uh, upsold to, to a bigger category. Um, but yes, we're, we're, we're losing out on rate. Uh, costs are a little bit higher, which cuts, cuts into the profit margin. Hence, we need to uh, control the cost. And, and there's a big difference between controlling the cost and cutting cost. Cutting cost is just saving and also compromising maybe on quality and service. Controlling the cost, and that's where the experience comes in, uh, we as an operator have the obligation and responsibility to protect the profit margin, and that's why the owners have put us on, uh, you know, on, on the case. And uh, I think uh, Amit can uh, uh, reconfirm that, that you need to be really creative and make sure you're still delivering the experience, you're delivering the service, and I always say service quality consistency even though it's tougher now and the profit margins of the 80s and 90s, they're gone and it will take a couple of years uh, to, you know, get our rate back up. Dubai had still not recovered from the financial crisis um, because we have 750 hotels in, uh, in the city and there's more supply coming in and uh, the rate can just not... Uh, grow uh, as quick as the, the supply grows and uh, the challenges are there. So, uh, Sam, if it's okay, let's bring the, the, everybody back in uh, and I'll continue to talk to Michael at this particular point on a topic that Mark had brought up earlier about uh, talent pool. Uh, uh, talk a bit about that. Of course, Middle East as a region relies very heavily on foreign labor to come in. Uh, do you think that trend will continue? And how does the industry attract people? I'll give you an example in the U.S. And again, it might not be applicable to emerging economies, but at least in mature economies, uh, uh, companies like Amazon or food delivery uh, are paying bonuses to people to go work for them at very high hourly wages. And, and this gig economy has presented a competition to our industry, which seems pretty attractive by all accounts. What can the industry do to attract people 
keeping in mind that it's a very thin margin business. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, uh, hoteliers and, and and team members, associates in all levels, whether it's uh, line, uh, you know, service level uh, line colleagues or or in the management, hoteliers are known to be hard workers. You know, they're like camels; they can go through the desert uh, with a glass of water, and um, and. The other industries, they know that, you know, we're competing with banks, we're competing with other service industries. And I must say, during the pandemic, we have lost a lot of good talent that have joined other industries, not just uh, um, other uh, competitors or uh, other colleagues. They, they, yeah, they went to other industries. So it will be hard for us to get back. What we need to do, we need to uh, walk the talk, we need to invest in our people, don't look at uh, our colleagues and associates as payroll and cost. It's actually our biggest asset and uh, every investment, whether it's time or money you, you put into uh, people, is the right investment. And we've seen now with, with the e-learning platforms, with, with uh, staying in touch and communicating with the team members, we had team members, they were on unpaid leave. I mean, that's not a joke. You know, you're at home, nothing to do. You have a job, but you don't earn money. I mean, this is unheard of, but this is, uh, as we speak, what, what happened uh, last year and, and, and possibly this year uh, at some stage. And also big brands, uh, you know, are doing this. It's not like uh, this is here, uh, Mr. No Name dealing with this. So loyalty is a big thing, and we need to we need to yeah be you know loyalty uh, works two ways. It's not just one way. So if you want to be a preferred employer, you need to walk the talk. You need to look after your people, provide career opportunities, empower them. If you don't empower people and you micromanage them, they're going to leave. Hey, Ahmed, it, would you have any any comments on this? Because particularly in the region with foreign labor coming in, not only that the wages were there, you were also having housing costs attached to that because most of the people were provided uh, uh, dormitories to to uh, house them. What will the industry have to do? Uh, because obviously the the labor component continues to be one of the largest line item uh, in expense categories? A yeah. uh, couple of things uh, that are happening and are happening more and more. If you look at uh, Saudi as an example, you have a lot of Saudi nationals who are moving into hospitality as an industry. Uh, this has always been the case uh, in places like Oman, Bahrain, uh, as an example. And I, and I think uh, these are the changes that we'll have to do in the way we conduct our business. Uh, efficiencies, uh, this region had the highest FTE per room, uh, and it was not because of, not only because of the services, it was also to do with the efficiency and what was done. I think this is another area where training and everything else is going to make a big difference, and also what we pay for what you get. So I think that efficiency part of it is going to uh, come in uh, very strongly here. And you know, moving forward, I sorry. No, no, please go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I think moving forward, uh, payroll as a line item. Uh, for me, I don't look at payroll as a line item. This is the team that uh, you know keeps us where we are. Uh, these are the guys who work with us day in and day out uh, to 
build these institutions uh, that have become, uh, you know, the flagship uh, carriers for anybody and everybody around the world. The minute you say hospitality, this part of the region stands tall. So I think uh, moving forward, we have to take more care, but definitely efficiency is going to be key in this. So, look, this conversation about uh, looking after the staff has been had for the longest time. We all know how critical that is. We all know how pivotal uh, these folks are because at the end of the day, we're in the people industry. How do we attend to uh, uh, the, the, the wage disparity that the industry has had? Look, a couple of years ago, it might not have been an issue. Today, it is an issue where... Uh, uh, again, it was in, listed in Wall Street, uh, an ice cream uh, uh, parlor that was advertising for, and I'm making these rates up, so don't quote me on it. They advertised for people to serve ice cream at $12, $13, which is typically a job held by a student as a part-time basis. They didn't get a single applicant. They moved the wages up to 20 They got 1,000 applicants in a matter of a day, and then they stopped counting. How do, we, how do we get around to that, keeping in mind what Mark had brought up, that it is a thin margin business? Who pays for the increasing costs? Mark, do you have any further thoughts on this? Well, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, potentially, you know, Michael was talking about technology and, and a lot of what was viewed as technological advancement. I remember going to an expo in Switzerland, maybe almost 20 years ago. Um, and they had fingerprint hotel room, you know, key opening stuff. And, you know, and, and at the time it was very much viewed as a gimmick, you know, and, and nobody really implemented this, but, you know, to Michael's point, COVID has kind of forced everybody to fast track technology and, and take what was gimmicks now more seriously and, and kind of make them more mainstream. So maybe there's a potential there to, you know, to talk about what Anna was talking about regarding efficiencies, if we can use tech, prop tech um, and operational tech to, to make a property more efficient, reduce that FTE per key, then you'll have more money to spend. I mean, if you, if you leave your staff cost stagnant, right, let's say it's X percent, but you reduce your staff by you know, 20%, then you have an additional 20% per head that you can spend. So potentially there's, um, you know, fat in there that could be used. I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, you know, this is hyperbole. Um, but, you know, the, the main point that I got, which, you know, I was really disappointed that I hadn't done this myself, was that Amit managed to get the word bandwidth into his, his section and, and Michael used walk the talk. And, and I'm just bummed that I missed those two key words because, you know, that's just, if you don't, if, you, if you're being interviewed and you don't use bandwidth and walk the talk, I mean, you know, you're not worth your salt. <laughs> uh, so, uh, 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 Mark, your invitation to come back on the show is rescinded. You will not be allowed. <laughs> it took you so long to invite me anyway. I, I kind of feel like you were out of people. Kind of, you know, with all due respect to Ahmed and Michael, you kind of scrape the bottom of the barrel for me, right? I mean, you know, everybody, all these guys I saw were junior to me at hotel school and people I used to mentor and stuff, uh, you know, getting invited on. And, and, you know, I'm just sitting here twiddling my thumbs. I have a question about uh, recruitment, uh, if I may. Uh, I did, we had a panel uh, a few weeks ago and who one of the panelists is... Um, involved with uh, uh, with Kingdom and uh, Red Sea Development and 
she mentions that their aim at having uh, that the nationals will represent 50 percent of of the of the staffing in their developments. Uh, where is the like UAE or Dubai or Sharjah and Ajman in this game? Could maybe Michael uh, I, or uh, let me jump in for one second on that because that's a Radna you're talking about for sure. And, and what <laughs> I, I will know. say because I know Radna well. Um, well, I mean I haven't spoken in a while, but I do know. I watched the session, by the way. I'm your one fan. Um, and uh, what I will Mark, say is the Saudi population. You're on the roll, huh? <laughs> it's getting late, right? I'm, I'm running on I'm running on <laughs> caffeine fumes this morning. Um, the the Saudi population is is a you know huge factor. You don't have the same kind of ratio expat to locals, so they have to have that kind of um, Saudiization or whatever you want to call it. And you know, I was involved when I was working in Lausanne with um, helping get. Uh, King Abdulaziz University's uh, county, the, the tourism institute in, in, in Jeddah up, up and, and going really, um, you know, and, and there was a really big push to try and get Saudis interested in the industry. I think the issue is the culture of service um, is, is what is what has been a bit of an issue in Saudi. Um, but anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll leave Michael to, to answer the hard questions. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, the kingdom cannot be compared. You're absolutely right. You know, it's a different culture, different history. I think they just appointed the first female general manager, and there are actually not so many Saudi general managers around. You know, it, it sounds good, and it's actually a rule that, you know, every GM going forward should be a Saudi, but. It's not possible. They're not around, you know. I, I, it takes probably um, a decade to to start the program now to have a strong number twos who then can take over as a as a strong number one. But you have to start at some stage. Um, the UAE is different. I mean, eighty percent are uh, expats. They keep the country going. Um, it's 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 a different uh, different setup. We try to get a, a really diverse uh, uh, workforce. Um, we look. Uh, we we have hotels. We have 35 to 40 different nationalities. I mean, just uh, providing food in the staff canteen is already a challenge. You know, I mean, you, you cannot please everyone, and uh, you always have 80 percent who are not happy. You know, so <laughs> the, the chef pulls his hair. But we, we need to do this. You know, we're. we're, we're I mean, we have a great uh, general manager who, who, who is a cluster GM. He brings the teams together. He, they formed the cricket team. I have no clue about cricket. I'm German. I know a little bit about football, but even there I'm not great. So they want to uh, teach me cricket. You know, we did beach cleaning the other day and said, okay, this will be the field here for our cricket. Uh, so I said, what? But you need to do these things, you know. Uh, they have football tournaments. I, I go biking, so I invited um, some of the team members to go biking. And uh, it doesn't matter whether you're the waiter, you're the chef, you're the housekeeper, you're the receptionist, or you're the EIM, uh, or I'm the COO. Titles don't mean anything, you know. You cannot lead by a title. You need to, you need to, a title is something you need to earn, you know. I met so many people with big titles, if you remove the title, you will not remember them. And I, I met so many genuine line-level staff members. They became friends over the years. That's what matters, you know. It's hardware and software in life. You can have the best computer. I have a, I think probably my computer here is $5,000 uh, uh, of value, maybe more. If the software is crap and doesn't work, it's useless. 
you forget about. So the people are the software. Hardware is uh, what Mark puts on his Excel sheet and, and calculates every day the investment. That's money. Everyone who has the money can do the can do the deal, you know. But the the people bring the brand and the project to life. And if you don't invest in the people. I don't understand people put multi-million, hundreds of million dollars into investment and then in, they negotiate uh, the GM down for uh, two and a half thousand or five thousand dirhams to save some money. But he could make a difference in, in one second and one decision, he can make or break a deal that would uh, make Amit happy at the end of the month when going through the P&L. You don't know what you don't know. You, many investors and many owners are missing the point. So that was my 10 cents to this. Perfect. <laughs> I think just, well, uh, just to add to what Michael said, that's why you need uh, asset managers who know what they're doing. Otherwise, uh, you know, the whole uh, blend between what Mark does and what Michael does uh, never comes through. Yeah. Uh, so let's work together. The three of us should work together with uh, some Eric and Abbott being our consultants and let's create something. Deal. <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? <laughs> DNZ advisors. <laughs> there, you there, 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 there you go. There you go. As hey, an aside, so Mike, quickly, interestingly, you know, about titles and, and making people GMs who don't deserve it and so on and so forth. Going back to Cauti, I remember very well when we met with the university and they said, well, in order to be a professor at the university in Saudi, you need to have a PhD. Um, and so we had to find chefs with PhDs which was very interesting. Um, oh, wow. We found them in Egypt. You'd be surprised what you can find in Egypt. Um, <laughs> but we found some PhDs you know, in slow cooking and some interesting things like that. So, but yeah, again, well, it, you know, didn't make any sense. That PhD might have been in microbiology and the person is cooking at the end of the day. So there might be some relevance there. Uh, gentlemen, I know we are approaching a, a, a late for you, so I don't want to keep you away from your, your dinner and drink, but one last question, if I may. Uh, 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 priorities for the future. Mark, I'll start with you. If you were to list three priorities for the industry and, and for your organization, what might that be? Three, huh? Can I go last? Well, you can, you can say five. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's fine, that's fine. Uh, I mean... I think I think the green point is a very interesting one. Um, you know, I think also measured approach to supply, and and that's something that I saw. So let's start with number one. You know, a, a kind of conscious decision to be as ecological as possible, and I think the UAE is is very ecological when you strip out the energy piece. Once the UAE is producing green energy, um, you'll see that the buildings that are being developed here are, are extremely efficient. Um, a lot of the buildings that have been developed over the years in, in other more sophisticated markets. So I think green is, is one. Obviously, there's more green funds and things like that that are coming up. So getting green financing is easier and easier. Um, number two, I think, um, you know, capping the amount of development in the hotel space and you know, across asset classes I've seen in markets in Africa, particularly where, you know, it becomes a fad. And even here it's happened with, um, you know, workers' accommodation. 
um, what they call labor camps in, in Dubai, for example, the, 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 the values fall through the floor because it became a, a hot trend to start developing more than eight, ten years ago, and, and now there's just a huge oversupply of them and, and poor quality assets as well. So, you know, the idea of just sort of saying, this is how many rooms we need, you know, and, and be very Germanic about it um, and, and just kind of say, depending on what our arrivals are going to be and what the demand is going to be, this is where we cap the number of, of keys um, in the different categories and so on and so forth to ensure that those occupancy levels and, and rate levels are sustainable. Um, Thank you. And is, that, is that a good thing? I didn't know that. There, there was a third one, but I have no idea what, what, what it would be. Um, it, it's... <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair enough. We'll we'll save that for the next session. Uh, Michael, any any thoughts uh, from you? Good well, three, if Michael. Three, if, <laughs> if it's if it's three things, and and my team is probably listening, they they would bet now. They they, they say uh, Michael's going to say now SQC service quality consistency because that's what I'm praying here every day but I'm going to disappoint them it's actually <laughs> the three P it's people again yeah I would say people 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 but let's say one P is enough for people means investing in them empowering uh, them uh, giving them the freedom to take decisions and move the business forward the second is process the second P process which means, okay, get the right uh, management company on, on the case, get the right operating system going, get the right, uh, um, yeah, what is it, the right uh, process, the, the right standards going, the right brand going. And the third one is uh, that will make Amit happy again is the profit. So do what you can to get the return of investment actually needs to be more than return of investment because uh, if you get the return of the investment, you're changing money only. So you want more than the investment, right? So uh, uh, the profits. And I think if you put your ducks in a row and, and uh, you apply and you focus on these uh, three Ps, I think you can write a book for each of the, 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 the P uh, themes. And uh, I think this is what, it, what matters most. Thank you. And Amen. So I think from our perspective uh, as, as business owners and uh, developers, one of the key factors for us is efficiency. Efficiency in the way we manage our business, efficiency in the way our teams work, efficiency in every aspect of, uh, of anything that we do. Uh, second would be delivery, delivery and consistent delivery of uh, service standards uh, when we are delivering our beautiful hotels, uh, the way we deliver it has to be consistent in quality because otherwise we always then uh, go to the table back and the circle continues. Uh, team, the most important, uh, develop the right team for the right product, for the right assets. Uh, consistency in the way we deliver our business through the teams. And I think I will give this bonus one for Mark as uh, partnerships, yes. building, uh, so that's it, I'll make you look good. Uh, building strong uh, relationship and uh, partnership. You know, uh, I think in, in this part of the world, uh, one thing that we have seen across board is we are good in uh, creating value and developing strong partnerships, be it with strong FMB partners, be it with strong hotel operators, uh, be it in every aspect of the business. Uh, the partnerships that we develop with the industry, uh, with the local uh, governance, 
Uh, I think that is very key for us. Thanks for joining us this week on the Hospitality Talks podcast. If you found value in this show, we appreciate a rating. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that will help us too. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.